Welcome to the prologue of the story. The story is a 31-week series that we are taking throughout this entire year of 2018. The one story of God from Genesis to Revelation. The upper story, which God has already written in heaven. And the lower story, your story and my story. And how those stories combine to weave a beautiful tapestry, a beautiful picture of what God has for the future. Right there on your seat, it was, it was tucked into your seat, is this little card. It's a survey. I want you to just hang on to it. We're going to fill it out in just a minute together. Before we do, I want to jump right into today's message and start with an illustration. As I said last week, uh, everybody loves a good story. Stories inspire us. Stories challenge us. We love to see the guy get the girl. We love to see the underdog beat the Goliath football team. We love to see those stories. And, and, and I, I just love a good Story and stories like uh, paint a picture. They paint a tapestry of what's going on. And uh, one of the famous lines is, "A picture speaks a thousand words." Well, I, I have a little story with pictures. Uh, six months ago, my wife and I we went to Hawaii together. I surprised Janet, and the day before we left, it was celebrating her 40th birthday. And she wanted me to say, make sure I say six months ago, not like a year ago, because she's still 40. And uh, she's wanted to make that clear. And and she said, hey. Um, uh, 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 I surprised her. It was a complete like, hey, tomorrow we're getting on an airplane. Uh, her girlfriends told me, do not pack a bag for her. She will kill you if you pack her own bag. And so I didn't pack her bag. I surprised her. Then she packed her bag. Then we went. Well, uh, uh, the next day after we'd been in Hawaii on the island of Maui for, for a day, we came back up to the, to the room and the curtains were shut on this little tiny balcony we had. And I went over to the balcony and I ripped open the curtains. And her two buddies, two of her good girlfriends, Melissa Radke and Ashley Pig, were there. And their husbands. And they all screamed, surprise! And Janet just started cursing. No, I'm kidding. She didn't do that. She, she was stunned. She's like, ah! And, and, and that was the big surprise that a couple of her best buddies were on the trip uh, with us. Well, as we, we've just had a blast that week of, of vacation, and uh, one thing, David and Melissa, uh, Melissa was our worship pastor uh, recently, and, and uh, David and Melissa were also celebrating an anniversary, and David said, hey, I kind of want to surprise my wife uh, with like a vow renewal while we're there, and she always wanted to have a vow renewal on the beach, and could we make that happen? And said, man, oh, that was awesome. So, so we all kind of surprised Melissa with this surprise vow renewal, and, and uh, as we were taking photos there on the beach, uh, all of a sudden somebody said, hey, wouldn't this be a great place to renew your vows? And before you knew it, we had all gotten uh, organized. We had the bridesmaids. We had the photographer. We had the pastor, the most important person in the, in the story. No, I'm kidding. And, and then we had David and Melissa. And I mean, you want to talk about the photographer getting a great shot with that sun coming in and David's getting just balling and Melissa's like, suck it up. And, 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 uh, <laughs> and David's just like pouring out her heart and Melissa's like, how could you surprise me like this. No, I'm kidding. She was crying too. It was so beautiful. And, and uh, he's written some vows and is reading them. And it's just an awesome moment. Well, later we took pictures together. And then before that, we, we basically hired this professional photographer just to take fun pictures. Little did Melissa know it was for this vow renewal. Well, here is one of the pictures that right before we surprised her on the beach, this picture was taken. But this picture is not the whole picture. This picture has been cropped. There was something else in this picture. I photobombed them in this picture, just as a joke. I photobombed them. But here's, here's the issue. 
when Melissa went and paid big money to have these printed on canvas, they didn't use the cropped photo. They actually, they actually used the one where I'm photobombing him. Here, help me out, Derek. Just, just hand that over to me. And we're talking about spent some money. This is now hanging. This photo is hanging in their living room. Now, uh, let me just say something real quick. Look, I want, I'm, I want to live my life for Jesus. I want to be a good example. But, but there are times that I do stupid stuff. And I'm just being vulnerable with you today, okay? Don't kick me out. Don't kick me out of the church because of this. But, so I just photobombed and thought it would be funny. And then the, the, whoever did the photo, they didn't use the cropped one. And so... I don't even want to show. Let's not even. Let's not. Oh, okay. Okay. First of all, I'm not really using the restroom in the pond. That's. I was teasing. Now this is hanging in their house. And look at this smile, and I mean, she's even got the, the pouty duck lips going, and, and I'm going, kind of. But so anyway, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is um, make sure you check your photos before you spend hundreds of dollars on putting them on canvas. But, but secondly, there's always a little bit more to the story. And see, some of you are living, understanding the Bible, but it's a cropped view. You only know a little bit of the Bible. And God wants to give you a full, full-on panoramic picture of who he is through the word of God. And so I want to I do a quick survey together and then launch into the why we're doing this with, with the story this year. So take this card, and, and the first question is this, reading the Bible. You can see there's A, B, C, D, or E. I want you to, to check whichever one fits you best. Just, just check one. And then understanding the Bible. Uh, I've had a hard time reading, understanding the Bible, so I haven't read much of it. I read the Bible occasionally, feel like I understand it, but haven't seen any changes in my life or habits so far. I read the Bible, see, consistently I can see and feel that I'm changing in my convictions, character, and conduct. Or D, I not only read the Bible, but I also love to study specific words. Now, this is anonymous. Be honest, though. Be honest. Don't, don't, don't write what you wish it was. Write what it is. And so our goal is to see that we will raise the temperature of biblical literacy and, and passion for the word of God in 2018 at Timber Creek Church. The final question is, I will commit to reading the story this year, yes or no. Available in the lobby, not only here in the English service, but available in Iglesia Timber Creek is an English and Spanish version of the story, a 31 chapter written in novel form, the word of God. It's 80% of the entire Bible, and it's written in a novel form. Well, shouldn't we have 100%? Yeah, I'm not telling you to get rid of your Bible. Still read your Bible. But you can read this novel form, and if you read nothing else this year, you will have read 80% of the Bible. Here's what it looks like. As you read the word, there's also these pages 
these little pieces in it that are in italics. And in italics, uh, Max Lucado writes these little kind of connection pieces from one piece of scripture to the next. And it's written in chronological order from the start of Genesis all the way to Revelation. For example, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Then they pause and they bridge the gap of what happens next with this little statement. God had created a beautiful world and filled it with glorious, diverse creatures. Of all his creation, he singled out two humans to build a relationship with, Adam and Eve. These two people were blessed to share their paradise with each other and God, so why would they want anything else? And then that tags you into Genesis chapter 3, where we begin to see the serpent at work on Adam and on Eve. And so we want you to read the Bible. Don't replace your Bible. But I believe this will be a great tool for us at Timber Creek to journey through together. And biblical literacy, knowledge, and passion for his word is going to increase in 2018. Amen? That's where, that's where we're headed. But I say these things, I say I, we're doing all of this because we really need to answer this question right here. Take your worship guide, and if you're filling in blanks or taking notes, write, write this down. We really need to ask this question, and we need to be able to answer it effectively. And the question is this. What will be the final authority for my life? What will be the final authority? There are people that your emotions are the final authority. There, there are people that w- the way I feel, you would never say that your emotions are, your, are the final authority for the decisions you make in your life, but then they actually are, but you would never want to say that. Your opinion on things can be the final authority in your life. Comfort zone. I get uncomfortable, so I'm not going to do it, and so my comfort zone is going to be the final authority of my life. The way I was raised is going to be the final authority. My opinion on uh, emotions, on sexuality, on, on uh, rights and wrongs, my, on what other people think about me, that's going to be the final authority. Nobody usually says that, but that is how we live. And what I want to invite you into, if you're not here already, is into a life where the final authority of your life is the Word of God. That the Word of God that's been tr- tried and tested from generation to generation, that you can still trust it. You can still rely on the word of God. You can still stand on it, and it can be a solid foundation. You know, the Bible says this about its own value. The Bible says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is what? God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Teaching is shows me the right path. Rebuking helps me when I get off the right path. Correcting shows me how to get back on the right path. And training shows me how to stay on that right path. That's what the word of God does. And it's God breathed. What does that mean? It means that the same way I'm breathing air over my vocal cords and by the, by the miracle of not only uh, language, but also by our own sound system. There are some of you listening right now that you don't speak English, but we have our team in the back that you're using the in-ear translation. And I see my friend Victor over there talking. What's up, Victor? Uh, he's talking. And right now, simultaneously, he's translating what we're speaking into the in-ear monitors for our Spanish ministry. But, but you don't hear words unless I breathe. And the way that, that God breathes, it is his word alive and active through different authors. The Bible says, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why he gave us the word. Also in the Psalms, the psalmist says, all of your commands. Everybody say all. 
It's not halfway. It's not some way. It's not whichever scriptures make you most comfortable. The other ones that aren't necessarily politically correct. All of your commands can be trusted. All of it. And when I say that statement, all of your commands can be trusted. Here's one of the questions that you hear in today's day and age. You might even be thinking it. And I want you to know it's okay. This is a safe place to have some questions. But when, you, when I say all of your commands can be trusted, a lot of people these days say this. Really? Really? Are you sure the Bible can be trusted isn't it just kind of what we've done over generations? Isn't it just kind of a rule book to kind of keep us in line from having fun and doing what we want to do? God breathed, really? Was it, was it, wasn't it just the authors? Virgin birth, what? A savior of humanity that dies and raises again. Are you sure? Guidelines for our lives, really? Like, I'm going to live my own life. Really? And that whole question of really is very popular today. Let's just face it. A lot of people saying, really, when it comes to living a life based on the Bible. In fact, even Time Magazine has taken on the, really, when they've on the cover said, is the Bible fact or fiction? Or Time Magazine, how true is the Bible? There is the question, and instead of, instead of putting our, our fingers in our ears and just saying, the Bible is what it is, and I believe it, and that settles it, la, 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 don't talk. We need to be able to have some candid conversations about can we really trust the Bible or not. We need to be able to talk it out. You need to know why you believe what you believe. There is this huge issue of students leaving high school, going to college, and uninformed, don't know the apologetic, aren't able to defend their faith. That's why even in our own youth ministry at Timber Creek Students, we are pulling back from four big services on Wednesday nights to three small group environments from 6th to 12th grade where there's two small groups in each grade that meet on very cool areas in our students. Center and then one big service. Why? Because we want to drill the word of God deeper in those smaller group environments because we want you to like graduate and trust the word of the Lord and, and like know what why you believe what you believe and stay solid in a day and age where everybody's just kind of whatever's cool, let's go for it. We want you to be strong. And so the current issue with the Bible, the Time magazine, is really the oldest issue though. This isn't anything new. The current issue with can we rely on the Bible? Can we really trust the Bible? That's not a new thing. That's not all of a sudden National Geographic uncovered some stuff. All of a sudden, you know, somebody's really smart and they got a blog and they're 22 years old and they're single and they live in their parents' basement and they're Brett777 at yahoo.com and they got a blog. And they're like, oh, that's a really good blog. I think I'm going to follow him. And you got Billy Graham and Brett777 or you got the Apostle Paul and you got Bobby Joe blogging in his grandparents' basement. And we're valuing both the same? What? No. No. See, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Michael, grab me a bottle of water there, would you? Just grab me that piece. Thank you. Thank you, handsome. Hey, he's single, ready to mingle, ladies. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> Give me your phone number. I'll put it up on the TV in a second. He wants to bring you a cold drink. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> love you, bud. Um, what was I even saying? Okay. Back in the day, back in the day when people would come to church, it was the only time they ever heard a message on the Bible. It was the only time they really even heard scripture talked about other than the actual Bible reading that they had in their own home. It was like a cold drink of water on a Sunday morning. And it, they relied on the pastor. 
And, and boy, that, that, what happened was they put a whole lot of stock on a pastor, and they should have been reading more and more for themselves. And what we have now is a generation, actually, we are becoming more and more biblical illiterate, biblically illiterate. Like we've kind of lost our knowledge of the Bible somewhere down the road, and we've got to resurrect that literacy, that understanding and knowledge of the word. But, you know, as we've grown in technology and society has grown, now that cold drink of water, uh, like, like, like now you can get it anywhere. You can get it from a pastor that believes the way I believe and a pastor that believes a completely different way. You can get it from a podcast. You can get it from National Geographic. You can get it from scholars that are hell-bent on, on debunking the word of God. And they take an objective view, but they are absolutely bent on destroying something. You cannot be objective if you're bent on destroying something. You, you cannot say, I'm all for your marriage, but I just want to destroy it and prove that it's not true. And there, there, that, that is what we're up against. And so what has happened is now what can happen on a Sunday morning like today is this, this sermon becomes a cup of water into the ocean. Like a warm cup of water into the cold ocean, expecting the temperature of the ocean to change. Because you're surrounded by all kinds of people saying, really? Or I think this, or I don't know about that, or that doesn't make sense in my own life, or that, you know what, I don't get it because that's the way I feel. There's all kinds of things at work. And so we have to understand this issue, this issue is the oldest issue. When we read in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He, he, he doesn't... The first words out of the enemy's mouth, out of the serpent's mouth, look at it. He said to the woman, will you say it out loud with me? Did God, the oldest, the oldest question is questioning the validity of God's word. The oldest question is somebody wanting to say, I don't know if God really has it right. It's the oldest issue, not the current issue. So no wonder we're dealing with it these days. Because it's never going to go away. There's always going to be another generation say, I don't know, another generation. And in the Bible, we see that there was just one generation away where they completely forgot the Bible. They, they just completely did whatever they wanted in their own eyes. We're just one generation away. It's why we've invested so much into the next generation here. One generation away. So what I want to do today, this ancient lie, it may not sound like this, did God really say? It more sounds like, now oh, the Bible's just a bunch of unproven stories. The Bible always contradicts itself. Um, the, the, the Bible, like, it's not really, you know, it's just a bunch of guys that got together and put some things together. So, so obviously it's flawed. But I want to give you just a few thoughts, some reasons, not all the reasons, because I just don't have enough days in this week to give you enough reasons, but some reasons why I can trust and value the Bible. I've staked my life on this word. And that may not mean much to you. I'm just telling you for me and my house, we're going to live by the Bible and we're going to leave the consequences to him. Because the Bible is God breathed the word of God. Why would you want to live by anybody else's word other than his? So let's talk about this. Number one, some reasons I can value and trust the Bible. Number one, the Bible is thematically unified thematically unified. Now, this is interesting. Watch this. You got one author that writes the Twilight series, okay? Riveting, Team Jacob and Team Edward. Not that I've ever seen it or read it. 
I haven't <laughs> read it. <laughs> you've got, you've got Twilight written by one author. Has this whole theme. Has a whole thematic element. But when you take the Bible, you have 40 different authors writing 66 books over the course of 1,500 years. You're writing those books in three different languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, on three different continents. So the idea of everything coming together, that's a challenge. That in and of itself should show you the Bible has some thematic unification that they're not stepping on each other. That they don't all have all kinds of opinions. But there is the thread of the story of God throughout the entire word. Look, I can't even get my family of four to agree what kind of wings to get at Wingstop. Let alone 40 authors over 1,500 years to agree on the same things like marriage, sexuality, humanity, the value of life, purpose of life, uh, how we come to know Christ, the Messiah. Listen, some of those authors even stepped out on a limb and 300 to 500 years before Jesus was even on the scene, they prophesied about a Messiah that would come. And sure enough, he comes. It's thematically unified. Man, if I tried to write a book on dodgeball, it's pretty simple, the game of dodgeball. It's like one basic rule, dodge the ball. Now, there's five key ingredients. It's dodge, duck, dive, dip, dodge. But the main thing is dodge the ball. But if I had 1,500 years to explain it in 40 different authors, you're going to have all kinds of different techniques and ideas and the kind of rubber that the ball should be made of and all, all of these different things. And yet, we're not talking about dodgeball. We're talking about the most important things in life thematically unified. Number two, the Bible is textually accurate. Really? Come on, isn't there all kinds of differences in there? No, there's, there's very much unification. There are moments, let's be honest, there are moments like in Mark where the, the Bible says, Mark, the author says that, that a, a person who was demon-possessed came to Jesus. And then Luke tells the same story and he says two people came to Jesus. Whoa, whoa. Mark says one, Luke says two, it's a, con forget it, the Bible's junk. No, no, there's, there's eyewitness accounts that still is inspired. It doesn't change the truth. It just adds flavor. It's, it's like Mark was short, shortest gospel out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He just gave the facts. He just wrote it out. If there was a car crash at the intersection of Fagan and Southwood and the loop over here, Mark would have said there was a crash where all those 2,700 stop signs are at Southwood and Fagan. That's what he would have written. But Luke would, have, Luke would have described the poodle. He would have described the Dollar General down the road and the car wash and the car that was getting the car wash. So, so Mark was just like, just the facts. And Luke was like a physician. He's like, all these details. And they have different personalities but still inspired by God. Yet through their different personalities, the Bible is still textually accurate. Now, this is important because there's no copy machine. I can write a note to my wife, I can copy it, give her the copy off the Xerox, she knows exactly what I said. But if I were to give you a copy of a note to, that I write to my wife, and you hold on to it for 15 years, and then give it to someone else to write that copy and give it to someone else, and then they write a copy and give it to someone else, you can see there could be challenges to the accuracy of the Bible. 
Let me talk to you about how important it is that we have the copies. And let me tell you this quick story. I've told this story. In fact, I've preached this sermon before. But I feel like it's so important to be the catalyst for launching into the story. The story goes like this. that July 6, 1933, a very important day in history. In July 6, 1933, the All-Star, very first All-Star game of Major League Baseball took place. The All-Star game, and, and there was a very popular baseball player in the All-Star game, and his name was, you might know him, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was a famous baseball player, and there at the All-Star game in Indiana in July 6, 1933, uh, Babe Ruth on the third inning, on the fourth pitch, hit a baseball to right field, hit a home run, the first home run in All-Star game history. Okay? And pretty cool because it was Babe Ruth. Now, simultaneously, there was a couple, a man and wife, who were in the bleachers there that, that had gotten off work early. And for a dollar and ten cents, they went and bought tickets in the right field. They were sitting there, the ones that caught the baseball from Gary, Indiana. Now, here's what's even cooler. After the game was over, a few days passed. The man who caught the baseball there in the bleachers, he goes to another town where Babe Ruth is back on his regular team, and they're traveling through that city, and he gets Babe Ruth on the side of the field to sign that baseball. This is the baseball that Babe Ruth signed and hit over the fence at the very first All-Star game in Major League Baseball history. Now, the, where I heard this story was from a fellow pastor. This pastor, the, the man and wife that were in the bleachers, that's his grandparents. And when the grandparents died, they handed down this ball to his mother. Well, his mother got very ill and required a lot of, of medical attention to the point where they had to start selling things and they were going to auction this baseball. And so he took the baseball, this pastor took this baseball, took it to the commissioner of the Hall of Fame for Major League and said, how much do you think this will take at, at the auction? And here's what the guy said. Mm, it's definitely Babe Ruth. It's probably worth ten dollars to $12,000, but it's just a story. Like, we don't really know that this was from the All-Star game. This could be just like another game. This could be another signature. This could be just something he wrote, you know, just somewhere in a gas station. We don't know this really is what you say it is. We just can't prove its value. You still follow me so far? Well, they kind of go discouraged, ten dollars or $12,000. That's still pretty good money, but they were discouraged and thought they could have gotten more. And as they were cleaning out their grandparents' attic a few months later, they came across a memory book. And in the memory book, there was a page, and there were these little articles on the page. And underneath the, the plastic, there was this image. It was a ticket stub. And the ticket stub was section T, seat 161, and it was a ticket stub for the All-Star game. And they went back to the record books, and they found that on the third inning, fourth pitch, Babe Ruth hit into the right field. And when they did the analysis of where T-161, can you guess where T-161 was? Right field. 
right field. But not only did they have this ticket stub, they had an article in the newspaper that a journalist wrote about Gary Mann on other end of Ruth's clout in Game of Century. And the journalist just wrote in the local newspaper about the man and the wife who caught this baseball, named him by name, talked about the inning, talked about Babe Ruth, and it was verification. And these two pieces of information, just, 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 just two pieces here. They go back to the Hall of Fame commissioner. And the commissioner says, this changes everything. And in the 2006 Hall of Fame All-Star auction, that ball went from ten dollars to $12,000 in value, and it sold for $815,000. Paid some medical bills. He did. <laughs> he did. A few. And in the brochure, in the color magazine of all the different articles for sale at the, at the Hall of Fame auction, here's what it wrote underneath the Babe Ruth. Simply an incredible rarity, which is without question. Like it's, don't even question it. It is the most documented vintage home run ball of significance ever in history. The most documented. We're talking about two pieces of paper. And it's the most documented. And we're not talking about a couple thousand years old. We're talking about 1933, like 85 years ago. The most documented proof. Now let me show you what documentation does for the word of God. The works of Plato. We know the work of Plato. He was the, he was the student of Socrates. He was the teacher of Aristotle. Encyclopedia Britannica calls him the, his philosophical works are of unknown influence. No one else has the influence that Plato has had in philosophy, is what Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica says. In fact, the same professor that will say, the word of God, will also say, but the works of Plato. Okay? Now, the works of Plato, it was written 400 B.C. That's 400 years before Christ. The earliest copy, the earliest piece of paper that we have of the works of Plato are 1,300 years old, and it's a copy. We have seven of those copies, and we stand on the fact that Plato is the greatest philosopher ever in humankind. The New Testament was written between 80, 50, and 100 only 20-some years after Jesus dies on the cross. Here's why it's so important that it's written during that time. Because there were eyewitnesses. You start writing all these stories, and somebody's going to show up and say, Oh, Harold, it didn't happen like that. You know, just Harold's, Harold's, you know. There were eyewitnesses that saw, yeah, it did happen like that. The earliest copy we have is between, is right around 8150. Very close, again, to even Paul would have been uh, right there just years earlier, uh, martyred for the faith. And by AD 200, we have the entire books, entire, all, the entire book of several of the New Testament. By AD 250, we have copies of the entire New Testament, full copies of the New Testament. By AD 325... There are 5,600 pieces of paper, 5,600 copies of the New Testament. We're not talking about Xeroxes. We're talking about copies. And by 8,500, we have in possession 24,600 copies. And here's what's great about that. 
is 24,600 different times, the copies aren't all different. They're textually accurate. They're thematically unified. There's not 24,600 different kinds of copies. There's 24,600 copies, making that they took very good care of copying these documents. Do you know that there were tribes completely dedicated to writing out the New Testament? Tribes, like, like you know how someone says, I'm a carpenter and my son's going to be a carpenter and his son's going to be a carpenter. And I, that's just what we do here. We're all carpenters, right? That, that's just kind of, it's a hand-me-down business. Well, the Sepharim tribe, the Talmudic tribe, and the Masoretic tribe, that's what they did. We, we copy we copy the word of God, and you're going to copy it too someday, son. And it wasn't like they were hiring, wasn't like they were hiring some kid nicknamed Turbo, you know, for a part-time job at the local Piggly Wiggly. And in his spare time, he'd just copy the New Testament so he could make a little money to buy some new rims for his sweet Pontiac Solstice. No, it was so, it was so strategic that these men would sit at a certain table, use a certain pen. Whenever they would write the word Yahweh, they would use a different pen because they didn't want to mark. They would, they would make sure when they wrote the word and, they didn't, they didn't write and. They would write A, A, N, N, D, D. And they would have a very exact. Whenever they went to the table to write the word of God, they would ceremonially wash. Like we baptize today, they would baptize themselves and prepare because what they were doing was so holy. They weren't just writing stuff. They took care, the precious care. And the most documented baseball that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars had three pieces of paper. And we have 24,600 pieces that communicate God is who he says he is, and they've taken good care of preserving the word of God. Number three, now this is a weird one, Bible is scientifically accurate? What? Seriously? You sure? Regardless of debates on creation and evolution and all of those things, what's really great about the Bible is what's not in those pages that you would think would be in those pages. Because science is always changing. When you were a kid in third grade and you had a science book, if, if you're 50 years old and you had a third grade science book, if we read it today, we'd say, <laughs> because science is changing. Went to a movie a while back with a doctor friend of mine. I said, Doc, how, how much is medicine changing these days? The, medicine, the science and everything. He said, every day. We're getting a new paper on. No, we're going to do it this way now. Some of you, you grew up, babies need to be on their tummy when they sleep. And then babies need to be on their back when they sleep. And you need to do it this way. And you need to do it that way. And don't ever get me. Like, like, it's, like the, the opinion, the popular medical and science opinion is shifting as we gain more information and knowledge. But the word of God, it doesn't have a bunch of the old science in it, which is beautiful. It means God's preserved it, didn't put a lot of stuff in there. In fact, back in 1861, an author wrote this book, 51 Incontrovertible Proofs That the Bible is Scientifically Inaccurate. 51. Do you know that by 1950, only 89 years later, every single one of the 51 incontrovertible proofs were debunked? You know why? Because they were discovering stuff. They were still learning. Science is a moving target right now. We're still learning. But the Bible, we have it. And we're not adding to it and we're not taking away from it. So we got to trust. 
we got to trust that it is what it says it is. But you remember this? The earth is flat. They used to believe the earth is flat. Even 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Some people are like, don't go over there. You might like fall off the world. Like you might just sail and just like fall off. And that was common understanding that the earth is flat. But had they read Isaiah 40, chapter 22, God is enthroned about the sphere of the earth. You know, the old science was the earth has to be held up. Something's got to hold this thing up. I don't know what it is. And so different religions have assumed they knew what it was. A lot of Hindu religion will say that there are elephants holding the earth up, and those elephants teeter-totter on the back of a cosmic tortoise shell. That just is what it is. That's what they say. And, and, and that has been a lot of belief for a long time. Beyond, beyond that, Moses, who grew up in Egyptian culture, the Egyptians who built the pyramids, they like new math. They, they had some smart stuff, and Moses was schooled and skilled in the greatest house, the house of Pharaoh. So you would think that Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you would think that some of that Egyptian science would have gotten in there. And Egyptian science, back in Moses' day, said that the earth is held up by five pillars, five key pillars that hold the world up. Yet Job, the oldest story of the Bible beyond Genesis, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on what? Nothing. Oh, the stars could be counted, we used to believe in science. The stars could be counted. In fact, in 150 B.C., the guy by the name of uh, Hip, Hip, Hip said, Hipparchus said, guys, I've read, I've, I've counted, I stayed up late last night. I pointed them out. You know how many stars there are? Here they are. Are you ready? Ready? Hip says, there's 1,022 stars up there, everybody. 1,022. I I mean, I counted them from my back porch. And that was agreed to be the science of the day. Then, 450 years later, in AD 300, a philosopher by the name of Ptolemy, an astronomer by Ptolemy, he says, Pops! Hip didn't know what he was talking about. I counted the stars. I know what it is. I've counted them. It's 1,026. I found four more. You know, even Pluto in our, in our lifetime has been under dispute on a planet or not, right? There, the science is, is adjusting and changing. And we know it's the word of God, not just what's in it, but what's not been put in it. In fact, Atlas is the Greek god, and a lot of the scripture was written to the Greeks. You would have thought that Atlas, who, who the image of Atlas, he holds the world on his shoulders. And you know, in New York City, there's this beautiful picture of, of the Greek mythological god, Atlas, holding the world at the, at the R, uh, RCA uh, building. And right across the street in the special chapel there is another, it's another sculpture, but it's Jesus holding the world in his hands. And, and, and the truth is, if Atlas was so popular, we just see that God preserved his word by not adding all of that mythological stuff in it. There's one God, and his name's Jesus. The numbers of stars are infinite, Jeremiah says. Too much blood makes you sick. Used to be that if you were really, really sick, one way to make you better is, is to blood let you. The popular medical process of bloodletting. A very popular person in our American history, the very first president of the United States, George Washington, Died of a massive throat disease 
But it wasn't the throat disease that really took his life. It was that the doctors bloodlet him of 32 ounces of blood over the course of three days twice. And it was the lack of blood he couldn't survive. And he died because they bloodlet him. But even the president, they thought at the time that was the deal. But you know, I find it interesting. Leviticus 17, the life of every creature is in its blood. Do, do, do you hear, do, do you see that, that, that you, you don't just have to put your fingers in your ear and say, oh, I hope nobody asks me a question about the Bible. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the word of God. No, now, now, are you guaranteed that everybody's going to say, okay, no. The enemy wants to do nothing but just say, really, really. And it's not just like a really, it's like it, now, day and age, if you even believe, you're an idiot. In some of today's day and age, if you really stand on this, I mean, there, there are popular, popular musicians like Macklemore that in a, in a song says, we're trying to follow lives by a book that's 3,500 years old. Really? I don't get it. And yet you can trust it. You can trust this. All his commands can be trusted. Every word of God is flawless, the Bible says. Number four. The Bible is archaeologically confirmed. And as I get ready to close today, I want you to grab the importance of this. You know, the artifacts and archaeological stuff, I, it was so funny. It was a, 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 a kid, 13-year-old uh, young man who, who came up to me um, after service and, uh, and said, man, I, I heard all that archaeology stuff made me want to, I want to like be Indiana Jones for the Bible, you know, and I was like, that's awesome, he's like, man, I just want to go dig in my backyard, he said, probably not going to find artifacts from Jerusalem in your backyard, no, he didn't say that, I'm just being silly, Bible is archaeologically confirmed, for a long time, they did not have archaeological evidence of the nation of Israel, in fact, the, the scholars, even to the late 1800s, said there's no proof of the Israeli monarchy, and the Israelites, the people of God, like, if they don't exist, we've got issues, if there's no proof that they've ever existed, you still have to take it by faith. But, but, but they were saying there's no proof. There's no proof of the Israeli monarchy. There's no real nation. It was just a, it was just a small little tribe. But in, but in 1868, the Misha stone was an inscripted stone tablet that Misha, king of Moab, had someone carve, and in this stone, there are uh, 34 lines that describe a battle between the Moabites and an army from the house of David. Now, if the Israelites don't exist, why is there a house of, of David? Not only then, but then later in 1963... We get the tell Dan inscription, T-E-L Dan. Go tell Dan. <laughs> tell Dan inscription. Because there in the, in the area of the, the nation of Dan, we see that this, this piece of artifact, 13 lines of inscription, and it describes a battle in 1 Kings chapter 15 where the Israelites fall, where the house of David, the nation of Israel, falls to uh, the, 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 uh, the opposing army. It's archaeological evidence. There used to say there's no such thing as a Belshazzar, the book of Daniel. Daniel the prophet ends by saying the final king of Babylon, his name was Belshazzar. 
But the scholars of the day said, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as Belshazzar. The last king of Babylon, his name was Nabonidus. Everybody say Nabonidus. Oh, you're, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. But yet, um, in 1863, the Nabonidus cylinder, which is a, a, a cylinder that has scrolls, text on it, the very last line of this scroll, the Nabonidus cylinder, King Nabonidus himself is, is praying a prayer over the next king of Babylon, his son, who will take over the throne. And his son just happens to be mentioned by name in the very last line of the Nabonidus cylinder. And his name is Belshazzar. People have said there's no real proof of Pontius Pilate, the man who washed his hands clean where they could choose Barabbas or choose Jesus. And they chose Jesus to be crucified. There was not even proof of Pontius. So why would there even be yet just years ago... When the huge amphitheater in Caesarea was excavated and they found this huge uh, uh, horse-running chariot area on the cornerstone of... I've been there. I've stood in the middle of the amphitheater. There on the cornerstone, there was an inscription they found just years ago. And on the inscription, it says, dedicated to Caesar Augustus by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah. Come on. Don't tell me. Don't tell me you can't trust the word of God. That was the patheticest golf clap for the word of God I've ever heard in my life. A shepherd in 1946, 72 years ago, chasing a goat in the Dead Sea Hills. Goat runs into a hill, into a little cave, throws a rock, hears a clank instead of a and when the, when the little shepherd goes in there he finds hundreds thousands of papyrus rolls that look just like this scrolls as they are taken out with great care because they're very old as they begin to be unraveled we find that they are the Dead Sea Scrolls, dated 150 B.C. and early A.D., right after Jesus. The entire Old Testament in papyrus, the entire Old Testament except the book of Esther, they find in these pots in this little cave. The book of Isaiah, the entire book of Isaiah took, uh, uh, it was like 74 feet, 10 inches tall. And it was all the writings of the book of Isaiah. Now catch this, everyone. When they went to translate the book of Isaiah dated 150 B.C. And they compared it to the book of Isaiah that you have in your Bible and I have in mine. There were 13 letter differences seven of those 13 letter differences was because we spell the word honor differently do you realize what you have this isn't God but it's the story of God and it's breathed by God you can't bow down to a Bible the Bible won't save you but it will tell you about your Savior can't put a microphone up to this Bible and say, speak Bible in this Bible. 
Jesus is the Savior. The Bible is the Savior, but it's the story of the Savior. And it's precious. And you know, number five, the Bible has survived all attacks. It is. This word, this book, is the most single, despised, dissected, denied, disputed, debated, destroyed book ever in the history of humanity, yet it still exists, and it's still the number one bestseller, and it's still the way of life, and it's still his breathed word. And I mean, groups of people have tried to do whatever they could to destroy it, to wipe it out. Why hasn't it been wiped out? I'll tell you why. It's not because of you and it's not because of me. But Jesus in the book of Matthew says it clearly. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. And until he comes again and he sets up the new garden of new heaven and new earth and we reign with him for eternity, his word is going to be true. His word is going to be solid. You can take it to the bank. You can live your life on it. You can make choices with, that, that are guided by it. You can, you can guardrail your decisions through the word of God. It can be trusted let me finish with this little story Bob Fresno California digging through a junk cell at a flea market finds a western picture because for his man room man cave he's got a western motif later he finds out that the picture that he picked up for two dollars this picture right here this western old western picture picks it up for two bucks finds out that it is the earliest image of of, uh, western Americana uh, celebrity that you know as Billy the Kid Billy the Kid is playing croquet in the backyard it's been documented by Sotheby's and the auction house, the auction house, when they did it, valued at over $10 million now. Boy, man, everybody's going to be going to garage sales tomorrow. Like, forget the Super Bowl. We're digging through the attic. You know, like. But just like the commissioner of the Hall of Fame wrote, wow. The auction house wrote, when we first saw the photograph, we were understandably skeptical understandably skeptical. An original Billy the Kid photo is like the holy grail of American or Western Americana. Like this is like the deal. We were skeptical. Really? Really? We had to be certain we could answer and verify where, when, how, and why this photo was taken. Simple resemblance is not enough in a case like this. And it wasn't just simple resemblance. It was authenticated. You know what makes this picture so valuable? It's not the age of it. And it's not the photographer who took it. It's who's in the picture. What makes this valuable is not the age of it, not the archaeological evidence of it, not whether you and I are on the same page about it. What makes this so valuable 
knows who's in it and who wrote it. And God breathed these words. Does it take faith? Yeah. I understand that some may be understandably skeptical. But when you follow and you surrender and you obey to his word, life change will happen. So go with me on a journey this year through the entire story of God. Your life will change. Would you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today, the truth is simple resemblance of a life centered in Christ isn't enough for you. It's got to be real. If you're here and you need to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you need to trust his commands today, if you want Jesus to be the final authority of your life, if that's you and maybe you've drifted or you've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior, but you want to today, you say, Pastor, would you include me in a prayer? I, want, I, I want, really want to surrender my life to let Jesus be the center of it. If that's you today, without hesitation, I want you to shoot a hand straight up in the air. I need Jesus to be the center of my life today. All over the room, all over the room. Don't hesitate. Several, several hands, men, women, young, old, all across the room. You can put your hands down. And I'm going to invite the whole church to pray a prayer after me. You don't have to pray it alone. In fact, everybody's going to pray it. Just repeat this with me. Here we go. Ready? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. Jesus, I cannot be my own Savior. I can fix mistakes, but I cannot fix my sin. And my sin separates me from you. But you make me whole again. And I invite you into my life to not just be part of my life, but to be the final authority, to be my Lord. Thank you for not being mad at me, but loving me so much, you would give me this moment to make things right with you. Now I declare, I'm saved. Jesus is my Savior. I am not perfect, but He is. All His commands can be trusted, and I put my trust in Him. about you, but I'm excited about this journey we're about to go on. Come on. I'm going to ask before you step out, if you wouldn't mind, just can everybody stand up with me this morning? We're about to receive our offering as our ushers get in place. Man, it's an incredible God that we serve. And I, I love an opportunity and a chance to give just like this. And just want to remind you, we have three different ways that you can give here at Timber Creek Church. Uh, you can go online, you can shoot us a text and, and do it all on your phone, or you can grab an envelope in the seat back pocket right in front of you. Before we move on, I want to remind you that we've got our Connect card. If you didn't fill that out, if you want to, 
you can go on. And there's a red line on the card. And if you decided to follow Jesus today, if you decided to make Jesus the center of your life, we would love to know who you are, how we can help you take next steps and, and maybe be baptized next month when we do that again or go to starting point or one of the other things in our church. But we want to know who you are. We want to help you take those next steps. And also this right here. This survey might just be a piece of paper, but we want to know where our church is. We want to know how we can help you dive into the Bible even more. And we want to see the results of what the story does across Timber Creek Church this year. We're excited about it. We're going to receive both of those in the offering as we receive that in just a moment. Today, I want to challenge you. Let's give. Let's be a part of the initiatives of our church and let's go all in. Because when you put a gift in that, and as we receive that today, if you drop something in one of those buckets, man, it goes not just to, you know, turn the lights on and turn the air, air conditioner on. We all know the air conditioner works really good here, right? Like, it's usually pretty ice cold in here. But it's going to reach people across deep east Texas. It's going to do things across the globe that our church is a part of, and you get to be a part of that every chance you get to drop something in these buckets. We're not trying to get your arm and, you know, break your arm behind your back today just trying to say, hey, this is what our church does. I'm going to pray over that offering this morning. Lord God, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are. And God, I pray that you would do something tremendous by the gifts that are received today. God, that you do something tremendous by the surveys that are taken up today. God, we believe in you and we thank you for that. And everybody said, amen. As we receive the offering, I just want to remind you about one super cool thing we've got going on in our church next Sunday. If you've started attending our church just in the last few months, we want to invite you to the Welcome to Church party. We're throwing a big party for people that are just kind of, you know, dipping their toe in the water at Timber Creek Church, just trying to check it out. And we want to give you some more information. We want to feed you some really good food. We want to give you a chance to hang out with our pastoral staff and Pastor Jeremy and Janet. And we want to have an awesome time. We're going to give you a tour of our campus. And this is next Sunday, right after the 11 o'clock service. We're going to meet in the chapel. We've got child care for you. You don't got to worry about your kids. We're going to give them some pizza and take care of them. You get a little bit of, you know, mom and dad time or away from kids time, right? Amen. Come on. But we want to get a chance to know you, connect with you, and help you connect to this church like never before. Man, we're so glad you joined us. We're so glad that you made, man, you made it here today. I want to pray over you one more time, and we're going to send you out of here. Dear God, you're so good. God, we're so thankful for the story that is about to be unraveled in this church in the next few weeks and months. And God, we're believing that your word will change our hearts and change our lives. God, the people that we work with every single day, family members that need to be here, and they need to know you and your story. God, we're believing for life change. God, bless these people. God, bless that food they're about to go eat and take care of them. We love you. We praise you. And everybody said, amen.